Praise God. Such a wonderful time to be here and to celebrate Christ with my family. And so I'm so glad I get to rejoice in what the Lord is doing um, just in the life of this church. I, I missed you guys last week. Uh, me and my wife were in Mississippi, and so we got a chance to spend time with uh, our biological family. But it's always hard to leave and not be here on a Sunday and miss out on being with our spiritual family. And so I'm so grateful to be here today to stand before you. I'm also grateful uh, that I get to share in God's word and break bread with you today. And so uh, as we get into the text, what we're doing is we're continuing the Matthew series. Uh, John left off and I'm going to pick up right here. And so we're going to pray for our, our pastor John while he's on sabbatical that he has good rest, but also I want to pray for him as well. But first let's, let's stand and open our Bibles up. Uh, if you're looking at the Bible in the front of you in your pew, it's on page 531. And But we're going to look at Matthew five verses 21 through 26 and if you when you get there say amen all right so that sounds like a majority of you so we're gonna read God's word and this is with thus saith God in his word you have heard it was said to our ancestors do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there or you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the, the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Let us pray. Father, I thank you. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to worship you through preaching of your word, God. Thank you, Lord, that we get to rejoice in the work that you're doing um, in all humanity, Lord, through your word. And so, Father, we get to take part in, in, in learning more about what it means to be part of your kingdom, God. So, I'll, first of all, I want to pray for Pastor John. I pray, Lord, for rest and relaxation from him. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to him deeply in his times with you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would, yeah, let him come back recharged. But Father, today I pray for the, for, the, for, the, for the people who are standing before me, Lord, that you would let your word reach their hearts, Father, that they would, yes, Lord, love you more, Father, after hearing your word. God, this is your word, not my word, Lord. It's the Sermon on the Mount. So, Father, I feel like I'm just coloring in the lines, Father. But, I probably, Father, I pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my Redeemer. So, Father, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Uh, in, in most movies, there are uh, two characters that we really care about, right? It's the protagonist and the antagonist. And so you might, if you skipped out on English class, you might be wondering what I'm talking about. See, see, the, the protagonist is, is the person who the storyline is based around. It's typically the person that we consider the hero of the story. And the antagonist is the, is, is, is the character in the story, but it's not the protagonist, the main character, but it's the person that opposes. The antagonist is the person who opposes the protagonist. He or she is the adversary of the protagonist, and, and they are considered the villain of the story. 
See, all good stories have this dynamic, don't they? All good stories have a villain and a hero. What's a story without a villain or a hero? What's a story where there's no fight or conflict? I'll tell you what it is. It's a boring story. That's what it is. Amen. Uh, What's Batman without Joker? Amen. Uh, what's Spider-Man without the Green Goblin? What's, what's Frodo Baggins without Gollum? You know what I'm saying? What, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's, 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 it's boring. It, it doesn't have texture, right? But see, here's the thing. The protagonist and the antagonist are typically not the same person in our story, right? But see, here's, here's, here's the thing about us, though. Here's the thing that in our lives, we're not either or. We're both and. We can, we can be one more than the other at times, but we're either the, we're both the hero and the villain. We're both the victim and the assailant. We're both the cause of conflicts and the one who brings peace. Here's the thing. This is especially true about our relationships with other people, especially in, in light of our Christian relationships. Uh, we create uh, harmony or, or we create fights. We cause friction in relationships, don't we? We cause friendships to go bad. We tend to blame other things that are outside of us for our friendships to, to go bad, don't we? We blame outside sources or things that, are, 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 that, 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 that cause our relationships to go bad. But it's if we see the thing that is inside of us and, and we see the nature of the war that's inside of us, we start to begin that we could be the cause of our relationships going bad. Today, my hope is to help you see that uh, what is the, the thing that causes our relationships to go bad? It's the anger inside of you, not the anger outside of you. Our anger can be a disease that weakens our relationships and slowly kills them. I, I want to uh, see. Here's the thing: Jesus' intention on the Sermon on the Mount is that we would flourish, and and one of Jesus' intents in in this verse, in this 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 passage, is that that our relationships would flourish. And that, that, that he would, we would have relationships the way he intended us to have relationships. Listen, my friends, Christians are not called to kill relationships. We're called to keep them. That, that's the bottom line here. We're, we're not, we're not to here to, to, we're called to keep them, not kill them. And so my, my two points are very simple today. It's the heart that matters and it's the work that matters. Again, we're at the Sermon on the Mount, and and Jesus wants us as his children to understand that we are here to flourish, that we are to experience this abundant life that he has called us to experience, that our lives should display his rule and it should bear fruit. Amen? Jesus is establishing his his kingdom, and Christians are citizens of his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't just tell us how to live, but it tells us who we are. Uh-uh. It focuses our attention on Christian character. It's describing what the people of the kingdom are like. Christ has come and purchased us, and we are a new people, and we have new hearts. This sermon is about the work of the gospel in the lives of, the, of, of Christ's people. Jesus starts this part of the sermon with examples from the law. And so our text today is the first of six statements that Jesus is, is stating uh, in, the, in, in this, uh, uh, this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the thing. Jesus' intention is to give fuller understanding of the law. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to deepen the requirements of the law. To help us see there's a goodness that's needed outside of us and a goodness that's needed of, of, from us. Here's the thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a goodness that is required of us. What I mean is that he's declared us good, so we should become good. Here's the thing. We are children. We are his children as Christians, and we should act like we're his children. Amen? This isn't about earning our acceptance from Christ. It's not. 
It's about living in light of our adoption. So when we get to a text today, we have to realize Christ views anger quite differently than the way we view anger. See, here's what he's saying. There's a danger to our anger, and it starts in the heart. That that brings me to my first point. It's the heart that matters. What I mean is that murder begins in the heart as anger. Uh, Our our, our text starts like this. It says, you have heard it was said uh, to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Uh, uh, I love to pick with kids. I, I love to confuse kids. That's part of the thing that I do. I, I kind of like to tease kids a little bit. That, that don't, don't, don't judge me for that right now. I, I can take a joke too far. I do. So one time I was watching a, a, a family from this church's kids, and, and, and they were being a little bit disrespectful. And so one of the things I had to do was, you know, I had to, I had to you know, get them back. You know what I'm saying? I'm a little petty, ain't I? Uh, so one of the things I did, I, I, I picked up my cell phone, and I pretended to dial 911. And I said, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to tell them they're going to come get you. I know that's cruel. Um, and so one of the things, I, I, I started having this imaginary conversation. As I'm talking, I'm like, hey, man, you need to come get this kid. They just, they wilding out. And, you know, at first he was like, hey, you ain't on the phone, you know. You, you ain't on the phone with nobody. And I was like, ah, oh, hold on. You don't know who I'm on the phone with. And I started going back and forth with him. Sooner or later, his, his, his smile turned to a frown because I was selling this mug. I was selling it. And then next thing you know, that, 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 that frown slowly turned to tears. Now, y'all, y'all, y'all judging me. The, 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 point of, <laughs> the point of my story is don't let me watch your kids. Amen. No. <laughs> Here's the point. The, 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 the point is this, is that, man, when we, even, when we look at, uh, when that kid looked at, uh, at, at what I was saying to him, they probably were just confused. They were like, man, he's definitely not going to call the police for me being disrespectful. That seems a little outlandish. That seems a little bit too far. That's what that kid probably was thinking. And you probably feel the same way when you look at this text, right? You might be internally wrestling with the implications. You might be saying, man, Jesus, are you saying in this text that murder and anger are deserving of the same punishments? That doesn't seem fair. What Jesus is doing is helping us understand the outward manifestations of our sin have a genesis. They have a beginning. Every struggle with sin begins in the heart, and anger is the genesis of murder. Now, to give a little context on this verse, do not murder is a law from the Ten Commandments. The Pharisees and the scribes have misinterpreted the law to the point they only made it an issue of legalities, right? It was about keeping the law was about not doing the act, not the spiritual condition of their hearts. People who murder would face civil prosecution and not consider the spiritual implication that it had. Listen, the law is spiritual, my friends. It's supposed to reveal our true conditions of our hearts. It's supposed to be the mirror to help us uh, see how deeply troubled we really are. This is what Jesus is doing in this text. He's saying the reason why anger gets the same penalty because anger is the condition of the heart of a murderer. That's what anger is. It's, it's, our, it's a condition of the heart. It's murder in the heart. But is all anger bad? We have to ask ourselves that question, don't we? I mean, if we look at the Bible, God gets angry, right? You know, God is a God of wrath. Yes, he is. I would say that's a great observation if you made that observation, if you're asking that question. See, all anger is not equal. First of all, I want to say this about God's anger. 
It's perfect anger. It's holy anger. We're not perfect. We're humanity. We're sinful. That's one thing that's a clear distinction between God's anger and our anger. Here's the thing. To be clear, all God's displays of anger are justified. Don't look at God's anger the same as ours. All God's anger have a good intent behind them, not a bad intent. We have to see that clearly. But when it comes to us, there's two types of anger in the Bible. There's a good anger or righteous anger, and there's a bad anger, a sinful anger. Good anger is an anger that, that when we feel it, it's anything that threatens God's position in our hearts or others' hearts or the, or the world around us. It's when we see people getting treated less than human, we get angry. It's when we, we see false doctrine that paints Jesus like a puppet, we get angry. It's when we hate the pride that's inside of us and when somebody tries to confront us about our sin and we we get prideful and we hate that sin inside of us. Good anger is hating sin. That's good anger. That's righteous anger. But how do we recognize good anger? I love what Luther had to say about this. Good anger. He says, an anger of love. That's what he called it. He says, one that wishes no evil on any, no, no, no one any evil. One that is friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. He's saying that your anger isn't good unless it's filled with care and love for people. If you express your anger by yelling and demeaning somebody, ain't nothing godly about it, friend. Ain't nothing godly about it. Bad anger is when you want to do things your way and not God's way. It's when the world revolves you and everything revolves around you. You're the focal point of everything. Everything exists to serve you. It's when you want people to bow down and serve you. And then you rage when they don't. That, that's what evil or bad anger is. You want everybody to meet your expectations. And when they don't, you devalue them, right? They become disposable to you. Ever talk down to somebody? Have you ever done that? <laughs> ever, ever felt like somebody's not on your level? Ever when you thought about somebody who's a member of this church and your interactions with them? That all you can think about is negative adjectives to describe them? <laughs> How about this? Is there somebody here in this church that you feel like they're, they're too difficult to, to manage or, uh, or be friends with? That, that's what I'm talking about. You treat people as they're disposable. Bad anger is when you feel like you're better than somebody else and you're too good for them. For the sake of this sermon, we're going to focus on the bad anger a little bit more than the good anger. But so we got to ask this question. So what is anger and what is anger not? First, anger is not a biological matter. I want to make sure that's clear. It's not a response to others' sins and wrongs against us. It's not just, uh, just saying it's something inside of us. Here's the thing. People tend to treat anger and particularly uh, as something that needs to be released. Like a, it's, a, it's a pressure inside of us and that just needs a positive outlet to manage it, Right? Nowadays, we see that anger is just something that we just manage, like punching a heavy bag, you know what I'm saying? Uh, or, or, or like uh, we're, we're repeating mantras to ourselves. See, it's more than that. It's much more closer to us. It's, it's a sinful inclination of our heart. It's a moral act. See, an outlet can't deal with it completely. Don't get me wrong. I believe those things are helpful, right? Uh, you, you can do things that, that manage the expressions of your anger, but it doesn't deal with it at its roots. Your greatest problem is sin, friend. That, that's your greatest problem. Anger is an expression of your sinfulness. That's what anger is. 
If you deal with any matter of the heart, it has to be dug up at the roots. And unlike in a garden, and, and Richard knows I don't know nothing about gardening, but I'm going to try to work this anyway. But if it's like dealing with anything in the garden, uh, it, it, it's something different because it's going to take a lifetime of digging to uproot it in your life. Bad anger is about self-righteousness. It's about how you create, you are creating and becoming the standard by which you evaluate others. Let me make sure I'm clear on this one. It's about what displeases you and what pleases you. Think about it. When do you, when are you most prone to get angry, right? It's when somebody does something either that, that displeases you or they don't please you, right? You get angry at somebody when they do something contrary to what you desire. You ever been at the airport and, you know, and the person who's there to pick you up is late and you, know, you call them and they're sitting up there like, you know, you're like, hey, where are you at? And I said, you know, they say, I, I, I'm, I've already left. And that's code for saying like, yo, I, I'm still at the house and I'm, I ain't even got my clothes on. You get angry, right? You know, when you, when you go to the grocery store and, and, you, and the person in front of you has 30 items and you look up at the sign and said, it says 10 items or less. And then you're like, how dare this person get in this line knowing that they had 30 items and you get angry, right? Isn't that what happens, right? How, how about this? You join a church. And when you join the church, you're looking for great community and you're excited about it. Then when people don't meet your needs or, or people don't meet your expectations, guess what ends up happening? You get angry, right? Here, here's the thing, y'all. Anger is about judgment. It evaluates uh, others and, and, and it puts others down. You become God and everybody else is less than you. Anger makes people less than human. It dehumanizes people. It judges people. Look at the text and what it says, whoever insults his brother or sister or whoever says you fool. First of all, we got to understand what the, when it says insults, it's the word rocker and that means you're a worthless person. Look at that, value. You're, you're expressing value. Then we look at the word fool, and it has a spiritual connotation, and it says an evil person. You villainize them. Both connotations have to do with a person's worth in our eyes. And, and insult, and when you judge people, you're saying they're not, they're not worth anything. You assign value to them. And I think it's above our pay grades, isn't it? Way above our pay grades. It's easy in our society to label people, isn't it, though? Don't we label people all the time when we look at younger people in particular? Well, one of the things we do, we say, this is generation so-and-so, generation Z, generation X, millennials. And the first thing we do, we, we pronounce judgments on them. We say negative things about them because it's easy to lump people all together and say something bad about them. So when we look at young people, the first thing we do is say, they're the problem. Look at this community around us. One of the first things we do is when we do it, we look at young people, we say the problem with this neighborhood is, is the crimes that are committed by the young people. The, the thing that we do is we lump people together and then we devalue them. See, one of the things I love about our church is the rites of passage program. One of the reasons I love it is because that king stage or queen stage, it's about assigning value to them. It's about helping them see that they were created in the image of God and, and, and being created in the image of God, God innately gives them value. That's what God intends of uh, all of us to understand that everything created thing has value and we can't dehumanize people. Christ didn't dehumanize people. He came and saved them. Here's the thing. We classify people according to color, political affiliations, liberal or conservative, denomination. See, and when we do that, we act like we can say whatever we want. But we can't. That, that's what murder is, isn't it? It's devaluing a person's life and becoming a judge and deciding if they should live or not. That's what murder is. 
killing without cause. Because they make us mad. They, they frustrate our plans. They don't agree with us. So we murder them in our hearts. Let, let's, so let me, let me ask this question. What does anger do? I think we need to ask, what does it do to us and what does it do to others? I think it's pretty obvious that it, it creates fights. We have to realize anger is the main ingredient to our conflict. We tend to think of conflict and fights are being caused by misunderstandings, Right? Or unmet expectations, or even a lack of conflict resolution skills. Again, don't get me wrong. When conflict happens, you need to learn some good conflict resolution skills. But here's the thing. It's not the cause. It's not the main ingredient. It's not the thing. Fights are caused by our anger. Anger makes demands, and if those demands aren't aren't met, we fight. And we can see this constantly in our culture, can't we? And just turn on CNN and the Fox News. What do we see? People arguing, bickering, talking about the, their positions and their political persuasions or whatever they're talking about. They're arguing, they're fighting, they're raging against each other to get their way. To get their way. That's the desire of most people, to get their way. Here's the thing, y'all. I love what James 4.1 4, says. It says it perfectly. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Within all of us are desires and passions. These desires and passions are not, are not always sinful. Sometimes they're even good. They might even seem harmless, but they quickly become idols in our hearts. And when those idols are set up in our heart, what we do is that we, gotta, we want to fulfill that desire and we rage against people. We get angry and we fight, fight for our way. Fight for the things you want. I think one of the things that we got to realize is that there's a fight going on in our hearts. It's for God's glory and it's for our own glory. That's the wrestle we have. We want God's glory and so we take him off the throne and make people submit to us and bow to us. That's, that's the fight in all of us. Because this is everybody's battle. See, one thing I love about my church, and I'm going to praise Cornerstone for something, especially those who've been here since the beginning, is that since the beginning, man, this war has been on all of us. We've wrestled because in planning a church, man, there's so many unmet needs and expectations, right? There's so many things that are hard. Relationships get strained. But one of the things I've seen is people die to their preferences and try to kill idols in their heart so that Christ would reign. Keeping unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, the sources of our conflict is when we have desires and they're not met and we become angry. See, but I don't want us to be blind. Much of the conflict in this room right now is found when we really want something, right? It could be friendship, but you feel like you're always excluded or you're always the only one that's pursuing and you get angry. You can desire marriage and, and you feel like nobody wants you and no one's pursuing you and, and no one sees you like, like you want them to see you and you get angry. You can want adventure or an exciting life. Then you look on social media and the first thing you do is see people living it up and having a great time. And then you get angry because you don't have the means to do what they're doing. Here's the thing that we get angry, we get bitter, we get frustrated. Here's what anger does. It discloses the true conditions of our hearts. If you're, if you're seeing anger for what it is, you're seeing where you're at in relationship to God and to with others. If you're the type of person who's habitually get angry, prone to insult, demean other people, speaking under your breath about them, wishing them harm, you should have a cause for concern about where you're at with the Lord. I love what verse 22 says. 
It, says, it has its corresponding penalties for these things. And it says, if we are angry, we will face a, a legal court. If we insult others, we will face the religious court, the Sanhedrin. If we call our brother or sister a fool, we will face hellfire. See, hellfire is this word Gehenna. And Gehenna is an actual, actual place that was right outside Jerusalem. And so it would be a place of unquenchable fire where they would burn up all the kind of junk and trash. See, the big idea of this progressive punishment is to show how the degree of your anger and what it reveals about your spirit, true spiritual condition. When we get to the level of calling somebody a fool, somebody evil, utterly worthless in our lives, what it's saying is that we don't care about them. We don't care about their eternal destination, and they should just go to hell. Wishing somebody hellfire or, or eternal punishment is one of the worst types of conditions of the heart. Is that what Jesus wanted for you? No, we didn't. Here's the thing. Have you ever been so angry with a person that you didn't care about their spiritual well-being? Have you ever hurled insults at a loved one or a stranger or a friend and did not consider their souls? Today, you might not feel like you need to repent of anything, right? You, you might be like, my anger doesn't get that, that bad. It, it's, it's not to that degree. But here's the thing. If you've ever cut somebody off of a friendship or a relationship, that's a sign of anger, my friend. If you've ever, when somebody's name is mentioned among you, and you make a face, you know, that face, you know what I'm saying? Or, or, or you say something under your breath, or you have this sly comment, or you don't always, you always have negative things you're thinking about when, you, when they're mentioned. That's a sign of anger. It's a passive-aggressive way to handle it. But it's anger nonetheless. Jesus in this text is getting to the point where he says, if you don't care about a person's spiritual condition, then you need to check your heart. That might mean you don't understand the gospel fully, my friend. You don't understand what Christ has done for us. See, people aren't nuisances, right? People aren't disposable. Look, Jesus had every reason to discard us as trash. We betrayed him. We continued to this day to try to take a seat on his throne. Yet we are not met with wrath, but we're met with relationship. Jesus came and died on the cross and absorbed the cost for our sins and brought us back to himself to be in relationship with him. More than that, we are also co-heirs in his kingdom. Look, if we have to realize what, what Christ went through and what he did to the extent to do, to do away with our sins. And so when we, we think about bearing the cost of reconciling with others and to keep relationships, we should be willing to do that because of what Christ done for us. I'm not saying we can't be angry, friends. What I'm saying is our, our anger has to be a righteous and loving anger that God has. See, God's anger was, was great towards sin. There's no lie about that. God hates sin, but he expressed it in a loving way. What do I mean? God was so angry with sin, he actually did something about it, right? He hated the state of rebellion that we were in, that he sent his own son. He put on human flesh. He spent 33 years of suffering with us, being tempted in all kinds of ways, and he died on the cross just to bring us back to himself. God is calling us to do something about it, friends. We're called to care about relationships. We're called to be, to be willing to endure relationships. We're called to persevere in relationships, church. We're called to deal with the sin, our own sins and the sins with others. Not just throw people away. People are not disposable. They're not disposable. Here's a question for us all. If anger is a moral act and it's a matter of sin in the heart, then what do we do about it? Listen, friends, the only hope for our anger is the gospel. It's about recognizing our, that our anger is not neutral. It's always good or bad. There's no in-between. There's no gray areas in this, friend. Either we're in sin or we're not in sin. 
And we got to make those things clear, those distinctions. There's no middle ground with sin. I'm kind of in sin, but I'm really not. That's not how that works. Listen, if the core of our anger is is that we set up our own kingdoms and we become the judge and the ruler, what the gospel does, it crumbles our kingdom and sets up a new reign. That new reign is Christ himself. He is the king of the kingdom. And what he does is he becomes the ruler and judge. And his justice was this. He went to the cross on our behalf. Listen, let me be extremely clear. What Jesus does in our hearts, he doesn't just tweak them or encourage them. He makes them new. God has done the heavy lifting in our lives. And like I said, we were given his goodness so that we become good. That means the work here that he's called us to matters. So let's look at the next few verses. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. And then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court, to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Listen, friends, with new hearts, there are new actions. We no longer live in the same way because what Christ has done. That brings me to my second point. It's the work that matters. What I mean is there's two major works that Christ has called us as his believers and his children to do. There's the work of repent and there's a work of repair. I love my son, Josiah. I have a son named Josiah. And one of the things that people say about it, he looks more and more like me daily. Like, like I remember the first few years, maybe about three, four, up to three, four, five, he looked exactly like my wife, Sandy. Now, the problem with that is that everybody didn't think I had nothing to do with him. And I was like, hold on, that's my son. Let's get a DNA test. I know that's my son. Because as, as you, know, you know my son, he has all my mannerism. And now he's starting to have my face. And that's getting really weird for me. That's getting extremely weird. But one of the things that, that, that is, is important to understand is that he's starting to look like me. So one of the reasons why it's possible to live like Jesus is because we are his children. We are starting to look like our daddy. That's what sanctification is. We start to look and be molded and conform into the image of Christ. We look more like our daddy because he's our parent. He's adopted us. If you look at these uh, verses for face value, you might think it's about behavior modification. But the greater context makes us say something a little bit more clear. In the Sermon on the Mount, as stated, Jesus is helping us understand what the character of the kingdom looks like. He's saying that this is the life of a person who is saved. This is the life of a person who is being led and submitted to the Holy Spirit. Jesus is raising the standard by which we deal with sin. The only way we can truly deal with our sin is is if we do it by the power of the gospel working in and through us. See, see, so when we look to the next few verses, it might seem like common sense. It might seem like this is apart from Jesus. But what he's saying, dealing with sin or dealing with uh, anger takes real repentance. And the fruit of our repentance is real repair. You might be thinking, I've seen non-believers repair relationships. I've seen them repent of sin. But I, I would question if you really understand what's going on in their heart. I think Matthew 15 says a lot about this. When Jesus addresses the, the Pharisees, he, he's addressing how they understood the law. In the chapter, they, they are confronting Jesus about an issue of keeping the law. And Jesus says this to them. He says, you flatter me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus is saying, just because there you show signs of life doesn't mean you're alive. Listen, the Pharisees' actions are about self-righteousness. If the focus was pleasing themselves, many times people's motivations are to ease their own conscience. 
They feel like they're good or they try to get something out of it for themselves. Haven't you heard the phrase, I want to be the bigger person? What that that phrase is really saying is that because I'm bigger, because I'm better, I'm going to act bigger and better than you. What it is is an act of self-righteousness. It means that I'm better than you. This isn't real repentance or real repair. It's looking to please yourself. In the end, it's self-serving. So when we get to this text, just remember uh, what Jesus is really talking about. He's talking to his disciples. He's teaching them that it's what is possible if we live and we live in light of our adoption, that we are citizens of, uh, of his kingdom. We need to have repentance from the heart and we need to have uh, and repair relationships from the heart. In, in the end, the end of goal for all reconciliation is not that we please ourselves or it's self-serving, but we serve others, but ultimately serve God. That's the end of our lives is to serve him and to love him. And here's the thing. I want us to be real with this what do I, and understand what I mean by real repentance and real repair. I think that we need to understand these illustrations are parabolic. What that means is they're trying to make a greater point. The big idea of these illustrations is we do everything possible to deal with our sin as quickly as possible or deal with conflict, I'm sorry, as quickly as possible. And the first step is dealing with our conflict is we must repent and forgive. I know many of us have a definition for repentance. It's, it's, it usually goes like this. We, we see our sin and we agree with God that our sin is what it is. Then we turn away from our sin and we go back to God. But I think there's, a, there's some depth that we need to give that. And, and what I mean by this is that when we repent, we take full responsibility of our sin and do what? Make no excuses. We don't make any excuses. Giving this death is important because I feel like most conflict look like this. I'm sorry, but when you did this, I did this. Isn't that true? That isn't real repentance at all. It's making excuses for your actions. It's saying, I'm sorry, but you caused me to do this. It's your fault that I actually did this. Or blaming something outside of yourself for the actions that you commit. That, that, that's, that's a lie from the enemy. It's like saying, I was tired, and this is, the way I, this is why I responded to this, honey. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You caught me at a bad time. Here's the thing about conflict. When we start blaming things outside of us for the sins that we cause, we're not dealing with the issue. It's an exercise of pride. Jesus is talking about humility in this text. He's describing a person who is humble and wants to deal with conflict. I love the illustration of a person going to worship. I know many of y'all might be thinking like, hey, when this person's going to the altar, it's like a trip to church. Like it's right around the corner. It's right in my neighborhood. But Jerusalem was the only place where people could worship at that time. And so for many people, it would take a day's or two, a couple days trip just to walk there to offer your gift at the altar. And so what he's saying is this, man. When you get to the altar and you're, about, you're worshiping the Lord and you remember you have something against a brother or a sister, and guess what? You take that day, that two-a-day trip back and deal with that and reconcile. And then you make your way back and then worship the Lord. A couple day trip back and worship the Lord. It's going out of your way to serve somebody, to love somebody, to deal with the the, the issue. Here's the thing, my friends. We've got to be willing to go the extra mile to deal with conflict. And the first way we do that is we, we got to understand how Jesus sees our relationships. Jesus says that we need to be going the extra mile, just like he went the extra mile and went to, to, the, to Calvary and died on the cross for our sins. We need to express the gospel to people. See, let me ask a question. How many of y'all have really gone out of your way to, 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 to deal with the conflict with the person? 
How many of you have really gone the extra mile, even when they're resistant to deal with the conflict with somebody? How many here today knowingly have conflict with somebody and have done nothing about it? Friends, Jesus is telling we need the gospel humility that understands that our worship with the Lord is only as, as good as, as our, our, our ability to care about relationships with other people. Isn't that what 1 John 4.20 says? It says that we are liars when we say we worship God and we love God, but hate the brother and sister we see daily. Our relationship with God is, uh, is, is a direct reflection of our relationship with others. But first, we need to repent before we repair the relationships. Because the real repentance looks like that we are contemplative and we really care about that relationship. And we want to deal with the conflict that is, that is separating us. The text says this. It says, your brother or sister has something against you. That means you're not innocent in a conflict. Let me just make this very clear. There's, when there's two parties, you, somebody can act like they're not angry, but they're both angry. It's about the inclination of the heart. What do you think about when you hear this person or see this person? Do you avoid them? The problem is, is that we're both angry. They just manifest themselves quite differently. One might rage. The other one might retreat. But we got to deal with anger because it's manifesting itself and it's separating us and it's destroying our relationships. See, the focus is on your sin. I know some of us might be thinking, well, they're 80% responsible, responsible for what they, what would happen. I'm saying, look, what Jesus is saying is that even if you're 20%, that you need to deal with that 20%. You need, to, you need to come and confess your sin. You need to embrace the, the gospel truth that your sin is rebellion against God and the good news that Jesus Christ came and reconciled you back to himself, taking care of the sins that we committed on the cross. And it's because we, we can do that and realize that our sins are forgiven, we can forgive the sins of others against us. This is the only way to start to repair relationships. We must do the inward work before doing the outward work. Because if we start to do the inward, or we, we do the outward work before we do the inward work of repair, then it'll be an exercise of pride if we don't do that work. It doesn't, we don't, we won't come in humility. What will we? We, we won't come asking for forgiveness. We will come trying to prove our point. And that will destroy the relationship. I don't know about you, but uh, if many of us could be honest about our relationships right now, how many times in our heart that we've kind of had a posture uh, uh, because of uh, against forgiveness of the other person because we haven't really dealt with the sins in our own heart? People who realize that they're forgiven are, are easily forgive other people. Realize the extent of their sin. They extend the, the, the ramifications of their sin. Act humbly. They don't act prideful. See, this is what Jesus is communicating in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that we need to remove the log out of our eyes to, to, for the purpose of seeing that your brother or sister's sins is just as forgivable as yours. Yeah. The gospel makes us humble and gentle. If you're going to deal with conflict, make sure you aren't going there to murder the relationship, but restore it. The second work is repair. And this might be the most applicational part that, that Jesus has for us right here. Jesus shares two things about how we are to repair a relationship. If we're already experienced the gospel and recognize that we are forgiven and we've extended forgiveness to the other person as well for the sins against us, then we should do whatever it takes and do it quickly. Doing whatever it takes means that you move toward that person. It's not demanding that they respond to you or forcing someone to deal with, with the conflict. It's going to them confessing your sin in the matter and, and not having any expectations from them. It's writing a letter, not explaining yourself, but showing contrition over your sin and value for that relationship. It's picking up the phone, calling someone up and asking, what can I do to make things right? What can I do to make things right? This type of humility reflects God's rule in your heart. 
See, good anger helps. It loves people. It points people to Jesus, to love Jesus. It's an example to the world around us that real reconciliation happens in Christ. When we don't, we don't come and we don't reconcile with other people, it diminishes Christ's reputation. The world is looking at us. They're looking at all the ethnicities and the colors in this room. And I say, when we can't bury the hatchet, when we can't deal with conflict, then we don't look like Jesus who reconciled us back to the Father. That is the truth of the gospel, my friends. Jesus tells us we have to value relationships and we need to get over ourselves and, and we need to get, be inconvenienced for other people. We need to be inconvenienced for other people. Jesus also tells us to do it quickly. In, in this illustration, we're going to, Jesus is, is saying that somebody's going to court and he says if it's not dealt with quickly, what's going to happen? It's going to get worse. It's going to continue to get worse. Uh, one thing is for sure, in, in our process of letting things go on and go on, we grow cold. Our hearts grow colder. Time does not endear us to anyone. It doesn't. Well, see, I know people who leave churches angry and upset at some things. And guess what it does? It, it, it's supposed to be dealt with. We're supposed to deal with the conflict or, or anger. But what it does is it puts, us back, it, puts it deeply buried, deeply in our hearts. In the back. It becomes the background noise. It becomes a narrative, but we don't know we're living out that narrative of distrust when we go to other churches. We don't know we're living out the, the, the narrative of, I don't want people to get close to me, or I only get people as close to me because I've been hurt. Here's the thing, my church. I, I got to be honest with you. If you're coming here, you got to know to deal with your baggage and the things that's going on in your heart, because if you don't, you'll bring it to the next place you go. That is the reality of our sin. It doesn't just go away. It has to be uprooted out of our hearts because of the gospel. What Jesus does in our heart, he radically changes it in our position, our disposition towards people. We don't see them as we want so. Now we see them in the spiritual eyes. We care about their souls. We care about their life in Christ. We love them. We love them. How many people are you withholding love from now? That your hatred has grown so cold. And, and you, let's be real. Time does not heal all wounds, my friend. Don't believe that lie. Time does not heal all wounds. That is a lie from the pit. And I will say it again. What it does, it, it makes our hearts, uh, it, it, what it does, it, it buries things deeply in our hearts, like I said before. And it's locked away and we hold them prisoner. So when every time their name gets brought up, we talk about triggers. What it does is that it triggers us. When something reminds us of what, what just happened in another situation, it triggers us to respond. That's sin when we can't forgive, like Christ has forgiven us. And I know there's deep injury in this room. I won't lie. There's people who have done you wrong, and I, I, I know it's hard. Look, y'all, I've said my testimony before, and I'll be honest with me. My dad was one of the most abusive men in my life. He called us names. He, he threatened to murder me and my family. But it took years, and, and, and Paul Rear is a testimony to this. It's my brother who held me accountable. It took years for me to walk through the, the, the forgiveness in my heart to the point where I even tried my best to reconcile him, calling him week after week, even though he denied my phone calls. Church, we've got to be honest with ourselves about our sin. I, had, I was in sin for 30-something years of my life and in rebellion to God. But I felt freedom finally because I wasn't under the law, but I was under the law of Christ. Because of what Christ has done. Amen. Church, 
What I'm saying is this is a matter of grace in our lives. We're no longer bound. Gospel makes us free. We're no longer held bound by anger. Our sin was great, but Christ is much greater. He offers forgiveness. And so, therefore, the motivation for us, he is the motivation that's for to live this way. And we can reconcile with others. I mentioned good anger before. and We have to look at a relationship as an opportunity. All bad relationships are an opportunity to make Christ known to other people. That's what bad relationships are. See, we're both the protagonist and the antagonist. But here's the thing. What God wants us to do is level up in some sense. Not be superior, but we're supposed to look to people and, and care for them and love them and point them to Jesus. Listen, God's plan is for us to not kill our relationships, but to keep them. God's plan is for us to flourish. Amen? And, and we do this by displaying the power of the reconciliation he's offered us. Man, God in this summer amount, has told us to live as if we are his, because we are. My final words to you is, the only thing I have to do is application-wise is to tell you to go. Go and, and do the hard work of looking and, and looking at your heart and, and examining your heart. Have other people give you feedback and tell you if you're in sin. Then go and, and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Who are you feeling? Today, if you do anything, do the hard work first. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of what Christ has done. That's what we need to do. And so one of the things I want to do right now is we're about to transition into baptism. And so one of the things I want to make sure that we are reminded when we talk about baptism in the life of our church, we don't just do this at a ritual or religion. That's not what we do this as. We do it as a reflection and reminder of the salvation that Christ has offered us, that the good news of the gospel has reconciled us back to the Father. And so that's what we do. We sit here reflecting on the good news. It helps increase our faith. It helps encourage our faith to walk with Jesus. That's what baptism, that's what communion does. It reminds us of the beauty of the gospel. That's what it does. It's not something that we just do. We just do it haphazardly. We do it in, in, in remembrance of what Christ's work on the cross and so as we go into baptism, one of the things I want to do is I want to be able to, 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 to we're going to hear is a brother's testimony. And that brother's testimony is about the good news of Jesus. And, and I don't want to take away from his thunder, uh, Matthew's thunder, but, but I want to say this. It's not about him. It's about the church being reminded. It's about the church being reminded.